Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, January 22nd, 2024. On the show today, news, surveys, and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim and special guest Dave Bossart recount how Disney and Monsanto built Disneyland's house of the future. One word for you kids, plastics. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that if your friends or the government didn't come back in time to stop you, the decisions you're making can't be all that bad. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Len. And and this, uh, you know, that question makes me think of of time travel films. And it, it's, you know, which which would you'd consider the best? And, you know, there's, of course, what is it? Uh, time After Time from 79, the Nicholas Myers, yeah. the original Back to the Future. Uh, Tom Cruise's Edge of T- Tomorrow from 2014. <laughs> I you had know. this conversation with Drew Taylor. I think that's the best Tom Cruise movie ever made. Well, I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, it just when you look at that figure, how would you, if you were the editor, how would you handle that? But, but uh, if we're talking about really great time travel stuff, we also have to mention uh, from time to time the Timekeeper. Uh, you know that 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 circle oh, yeah. vision thing. Uh, you know, just the the mix of Robin Williams, great vocal performance of Robin Williams, an amazing animatronic figure. Uh, and, and speaking yeah. of directors, Jeff Blythe, who directed that, uh, who would have thought that the guy who did Reflections of China and O Canada and that sort of thing could pull out, you know, sort of a tour de force like that? Um, it, yeah. it, the timing on that, too, was it was incredible. Also, I love the fact that Rhea Perlman became a uh, an animatronic. Yeah. Like I think, I think that that's sort of like peak Imagineering right there. No, no, no. It, 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 <laughs> it, it was a beautiful pairing, Williams and Rhea Perlman, and and you know also Michael Pickley, uh, you know, as as Jules Verne, and 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 uh, Jeremy Irons as H. G. Wells. You know, I I I really wish there was a place we could go to still see that movie. So. Oh, you know, let's uh, let's see if the future port eighty two guys can uh, can get on that next after they finish recreating Epcot. Oh, cool, cool. Also, shout out to the one English guy named Trevor. <laughs> okay. All right. Also on the show today, we'd like to introduce a special guest. Dave Bossert is the author of several books on Disney and Disney theme parks. And before that, Dave worked as an animator for Walt Disney Animation on effects for everything from Who Framed Roger Rabbit and The Little Mermaid to Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and pretty much every modern Disney classic of that era. Dave also worked on theme park attractions, including Seven Doors Mine Train, World of Color, and more. And Dave is based in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks very much. You forgot mm. that timeless classic, The Black Cauldron. <laughs> we just oh. saw The Black Cauldron. We went through a whole thing at the end of the year where I said I had never seen it. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, oh, my God, you got to watch it. The animation was amazing. And uh, it was true. It was very good. Well, I I will tell you that when I was working at the studio from time Mm -hmm. to time, I organized a special screening of the Black Cauldron in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was standing room only in the theater, the studio theater, because so many people had not seen the film. Mm, you no. know, yeah, and, no, I, I believe it. Uh, and yeah. it's it's not a terrible movie. No, 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 uh, it, no, no. It is sort of a bridge film, and I mm-hmm. think part of exactly part, yeah, yeah. part of what happened with it, mm-hmm. it suffered because when it was released, it was during that transition oh, yeah. of new management when Michael mm-hmm. Eisner, yeah. Frank Wells, and Jeffrey Katzenberg had come into the studio, mm-hmm. and that was the last film made under Ron Miller's leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what happens when there's a leadership change they yeah. they want to just uh, forget everything that the other guy did and move forward right 
and that Absolutely. that's kind of what happened to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but still, it, uh, it turned out really, really well. I like the um, the animation style on it. I thought the pacing of the film was excellent. Yeah, it was really, really well done. All right, before we get started, let's do a quick shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to everyone who subscribes to the show over at patreon.com slash Media, including Dave Kerwin, Mike Bradbury, Allison Fell, Antoinette Fornshell, Jillian Mack, and Matt Halbar. Jim and Dave, these are the Disney horticulturists busy crafting topiary for Epcot's upcoming Flower and Garden Festival. They say they're on track for colorful butterflies at the park entrance and the Fab Five near World Showcase. And although the topiary geese in Canada will 100% attack you if you so much as look in them wrong, they'll attack you in the most Canadian polite way possible. True story. <laughs> Excellent. On to the news. All right. All right, folks. The news is sponsored by touringplans.com. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right. Uh, Disney announced dates for Epcot's Flower and Garden Festival. It's February 28th to May 27th, 2024. A couple of interesting things there, uh, Jim and Dave. One of them is that it looks like these dates are a return to pre-pandemic length of festivals. So the last couple of years, Flower and Garden had run to July. Mm-hmm. Now it's ending a month earlier on June, th- uh, j- uh, sorry, May 27th. And the last time it ended that early was 2019 when it ended on June 3rd. And I guess mm-hmm. my question here is, does this mean we're going to have a gap where there's no festival between Flower and Garden and Food and Wine? Or will Food and Wine start in June? Ah. I know, I know. I that I you know I I I guess again think about it we we've we've all but completed our Epcot transformation I mean we're waiting yeah, that's for That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Communicore Hall to open sometime. In fact, I, I would be surprised if Communicore Hall isn't completed by uh get you know, the May close of of Flower mm, and Garden. Su- surprised, Jim? Surprised might be a strong word. Okay. All right. Just, Knowing Disney and their <laughs> Disney's construction schedule, would you really be surprised? All right. Mildly shocked. Okay. Mildly surprised. Mildly right. surprised. All right. But but toward that end, yeah. Um, given that that's what Epcot is being reconfigured as, as, as right, right. The, the yeah. festival center, the notion of you know, really, you're stopping Flower and Garden early. I get you know, my I, my next question is. So food and wine starts on June first. Well, the only reason I think, and Dave, jump in here if you want. The um, the only reason why I think food and wine won't start in June is mm-hmm. first week of June is roughly the beginning of summer vacation, and Disney doesn't have any trouble filling hotels during the first couple of weeks of June. Mm-hmm. So they might think we don't need a festival then. We don't need the expense of the festival because people are coming anyway. It's just a thought. Okay. Okay. I just, but, but at the same time, again, you, you literally just spent years reinventing this place yeah. as festival central. And then it's like, ah, we don't need a festival. except for you know, yeah. Well, you know, I, one of the things that's happening though, is that they're starting to put some e-ticket rides into Epcot. So yeah. will the festivals sort of, you know, uh, not fall by the wayside, but, uh, but, you know, get spread out a little bit. You You're know. saying, Dave, that uh, you can't sell individual lightning lanes to people who are eating cheddar cheese soup in July? That's, I guess. I that's don't actually know. not a bad. That's, that's, that, well, no, that's actually a great idea because you take people out of the rotation of eating stuff at the festival booths to go ride rides. Mm-hmm. But Disney, you've you've already paid to get into the park, and you've probably already paid for Genie Plus. Like yeah. from a revenue perspective, it, it might be better for Disney if you actually just stay in World Showcase eating food. I, I, as and, then going on, and then going on and then going on rides and hurling 
Mm-hmm, how I got well, and, and then, then, then you have to eat again. Oh, this is Bossert's theory of festival uh, festival there, timing. I like there it. There we go. All right, <laughs> that I, I just just one other quick side question here. Okay, so again, you mentioned the Canadian cheese soup. Is there any possibility that the defibrillators that were deliberately placed on either side of you know Alfredo's, you know, did they move them yeah, over where, toward where Canada? Are those they yeah, are exactly. You know, Particularly, you know, thinking of someone eating cheddar, you know, uh, cheese soup in, in in the heat of summer in, in Florida in June. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, I note that for the uh, for the uh, musical acts, mm-hmm. uh, they include modern English. If we don't get a melt with you sandwich at Regal Eagle, an opportunity will have been lost. Oh uh, I'm just saying. Also, there's a lot of uh, Central Florida acts interspersed in there, mm-hmm. including I think the opening uh, dates with the vibe. So good on Disney for helping those musicians get in front of more people. Good. Good to hear. Speaking of events, uh, Universal's also got dates out for Mardi Gras, which is February 3rd to March 17th. Mm-hmm. Musical acts include DJ Khaled and Zed, and that one's going to be packed because Zed is super popular. Mm-hmm. If you haven't been, uh, Mardi Gras is a hoot, folks. Mm-hmm. If you can wrangle a spot throwing beads on one of the parade floats, too, it's one of the best in-park experiences you can have. I 100% recommend it. I I was not good at it i i, I there, there was no you were su- fantastic uh, no there were a surprising number of babies and strollers that got hit right in the face i'm, I'm <laughs> just look no look I, I'm, I'm, I'm i'm saying that a couple of maimed children is far from the worst thing that's ever happened at mardi gras <laughs> well there we go <laughs> that, that's some real hurricane fueled thinking there len but okay exactly, so, exactly. You know, you know, so all right. Speaking of Universal, our friend Seth Kuberski wrote in to tell us that Hollywood Rip Ride Rocket mm-hmm. now opens 15 minutes after the rest of the park. So that's new for 2024. Mm-hmm. So uh, that means that if you're trying to throw up right mm-hmm. at park opening, you're going to have to wait 15 minutes for that. All right. Disney's got dates out for its after hours events. Those now run, run through summer, especially at Hollywood Studios. And we have an opening date for the new Fort Wilderness DVC cabins, which is tentatively July 1st. And those can be booked if you're an existing DVC member starting April 23rd. Looking forward to those. You know, the last time I was in Fort Wilderness, uh, actually uh, camping was the mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. I was in Fort Wilderness. Oh. In, and that would, have that, been, that would have been 1976. Oh. Wow. Right? right? So uh, I think Fort Wilderness was just campgrounds in 1976. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, there, I think there was no lodge. Be... There was no Fort yeah, no, Wilderness no, lodge no. there. No, and 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 uh, one memory from from when we camped there as a family, the campsites used to have as their base um, ground up seashells, uh, and I I make you know I I don't know why we didn't have a drop cloth in the tent, but I rolled over while I was sleeping, and woke up in the morning with this amazing pockmarked <laughs> face from you know like you know sleeping face down in ground up uh, seashells it was uh, nice an, an interesting nice. look you know, kids, kids I, you know sleep Jim, i think i think we were from the age from from that time period when mm-hmm. when everybody on the eastern seaboard drove down to florida and oh, yeah. uh, camped camp. yeah and went camping mm-hmm. yeah you know, which is you know just crazy my my first two experiences at a disney park was disney world camping in fort wilderness i've camped but not uh not as a kid all right let's uh let's, see i've camped a... as a kid not as an adult not as an adult. You, learned, you learned your lesson yeah for me it was like i wonder what i was missing and then i did it and like yeah, not much so that, there we uh, go was... there we go yeah, okay. okay all right we have time for a couple of quick surveys a uh an anonymous listener sent in a new universal survey mm-hmm. uh and one of the things that i like about this is a question that says which theme park would you say provided 
the best experience with each of the following? And your two choices are Universal and Disney. And the questions are, in terms of guest service, who provides the best experience? Then value for money, rides and attractions, seamlessness and hassle-free nature, ease of planning, food and beverage offerings, and customized or personalized visits. I, I'm just I, curious, I think, what, what do you guys think? I actually, it's that question in the middle there about seamlessness is... Yeah. This is that's a new thing they're asking about there. You know, that they is that uh, when they say seamlessness, is that the what you know, the new it, admissions media? You know, that that you know, you get you know, what you do the first time going through and then they do facial recognition, you can basically walk into the park, right? What is, what is seamlessness? I think it means a combination of things like uh, you can stay at the hotel and get into any park you want without having to make reservations. You don't have to worry about, you know, restrictions on if you can go from park to park because Universal never had timed uh, waits to park hop, right? Got so it. I think it's looking at that. Ease of planning, you're looking at things like can I get reservations? Do I have mm -hmm. to make reservations for parks? Stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I think the interesting thing for me is customized or personalized visit. I can't think of any way that Universal customizes or personalizes your visit. Well, remember, we're a year out from Epic Universe. You know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. maybe there's something coming over the horizon. Yeah, the second part of this was uh, uh, was this question. I think it's interesting because of recent news. The question is this, uh, and, and Universal says that it's optional. Mm -hmm. We'd like to hear more from our guests who may have unique experiences due to body size, dimensions, or different disabilities. Oh. Did any of the following apply to you or anyone in your party while you were in the park? Please select all that apply. So you've got things for like manual wheelchair or ECV, mm -hmm. limb difference, PTSD or social anxiety disorder, mm. oxygen tanks or devices, hearing disabilities, mobile limitations, including difficulty or, uh, walking or climbing stairs, cognitive disabilities, height below the minimum requirements, mm -hmm. vision, service animals, and so on. And I think the interesting, uh, this is true for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, Universal is in the middle of a theme park expansion phase. Mm -hmm. So knowing the specific limitations that guests have mm -hmm. will help them build more inclusive attractions. And I don't think they can ask these kinds of questions when qualifying guests for in-park disability access mm -hmm. because, as we'll hear, that might be an ADA violation. So a voluntary survey mm -hmm. is a good way of getting this information. The, uh, and the, re the reason why I mentioned the ADA is uh, you guys saw the news with uh, Six Flags being sued over its use of the third-party um, – Disability Service, IBCCES. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is, David, are you familiar with this? No, not at all. I, I am familiar out here in California with uh, there are some attorneys that go around and mm -hmm. just make a living filing uh, ADA violation uh, lawsuits against mm -hmm. small businesses like restaurants. Oh. The, you know, mm -hmm. the famous one was Clint Eastwood's restaurant up in Carmel. Mm -hmm. um, oh. They had an a, you know ADA uh, entrance that was in the back of the building, not mm -hmm, the right. front of the building, but the building was a historic building that was, I think, built in the 20s. Oh, so uh, it had historic uh, So yeah, sort okay. of grandfathered in um, mm -hmm. yeah. on it. <laughs> and 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 he fought that uh, to the bitter end and won. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just to say, you're not doing that to me. Right, that makes sense. The um, IBCCES is an Orlando-based company that many theme parks use to uh, vet or to um, to register guests 
who want to use their disability access services in the park. So Universal, for example, doesn't do that vetting themselves. Mm -hmm. They use IBCCS as the third party. Uh, and the interesting thing here is that the lawsuit that was filed against Six Flags mm -hmm. claims that having to document the relevant disability is a violation of the ADA. And that's important because like Universal, other major theme park operators also use the same company. And I would bet, Jim, mm -hmm. valid American currency that there have been recent discussions inside other major theme park operators about adopting IBCCES yeah. and that this lawsuit <laughs> might have paused that adoption. Mm -hmm. So this is something we should watch. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. On the one hand, I get that, you know, you you shouldn't have to document your your disability. Mm -hmm. I, I understand or you shouldn't have to explain, you know, your disability. On the other hand, we live in a world where people will take advantage of uh, uh, people who don't ask questions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there's a theme park operator, you're kind of caught between two opposing forces. On the one hand, you can't just take everyone's word for it, mm -hmm. that they need accommodation because some people are dishonest. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, uh, you uh, you don't want to be too intrusive in asking those questions, right? So it's it's a difficult uh, needle to thread there. We'll see what's Absolutely. I you know, just that that finding that sweet spot that, you know, yeah. you have the information you need, but you know, you, you respect, you know, individual privacy. It's oof, that's yeah. hard to pull yeah. off. All right, we have time for a couple of uh, listener questions. Let's do uh, see this one. Lauren writes in with a question about Disneyland's Haunted Mansion refurb. Mm -hmm. She says, do you have any insight as to how long Haunted Mansion's closure will be? I can't imagine that the queue reconfiguration, expansion, and shop erection will take until 2025 to finish, but the holiday overlay draws such a large crowd that I would hope it would be reopened by fall of 2024. Is Disney doing more work on the actual attraction? And do you and Jim have any insight? All right, I... so I think you and I... You know, I talked about this, but I don't think on the show, right? The, what's the plan? Well, I, I again, you know, that they they did an extension of Haunted Mansion Holiday that I want to say runs to almost the edge, end of January. But then the notion mm -hmm. is that the second that's over, they want to have this thing up and running, all aspects of it, by the late summer, early fall of, of this year. And... Uh, you know, so I, I've been hearing, you know, construction completion by the end of August with the notion okay. of opening Labor Day. What have you been hearing? Okay. Yeah. Same thing. First week of uh, September. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's normally the time that a uh, haunted mansion holiday would reopen anyway. So that's a good mm -hmm. guide. Yeah. Yeah. But, I also heard, uh, and the reason why they're doing this, I mean, part mm -hmm. of it is, um, they, they don't want to have haunted mansion. Uh, under construction while Tiana's bioadventure opens no, because no, it's on no. the walking path, mm -hmm. right? So they want to get that done in advance. Also, they want to make sure that they have enough capacity, enough walking room, and frankly, enough merchandise locations mm -hmm. for people who are going to walk by no. Haunted Mansion on the way over to Tiana's. So, yeah. No, you're not wrong. I, but... And if you heard the same thing about me as uh, um, uh, Disneyland's Tiana's bioadventure is, is several months behind Walt Disney World. <sighs> I I just heard that uh, uh, this past week. Yeah. Ah, okay. All right. Okay. You would know. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I, again, again, all all I've heard is the difference, you know, between the two projects. And in fact, when you if you know back of house at Walt Disney World and the staging space that they have back there right behind, you know, the old Splash Mountain. And, you know, that there's, it's wide open spaces. Whereas if you look at mm -hmm. Disneyland, 
you know, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. well, uh, you know, our guy friend Jim Schul, you know, says, you know, Disneyland is a Swiss watch, you know, that whenever you put something in, something else has to go out. So it's really difficult to to place to build. So uh, yeah. this kind of caught up with them on that project. Yeah, I get it. I would. Uh, I, I still think they're shooting for late twenty twenty four though for Disneyland, right? Yeah, they are. But you know that <laughs> as you were just saying about Communicor Hall, it's like <laughs> the term mildly surprised. I don't think applies in this situation. When, when we said Christmas, we meant uh, 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 Greek Orthodox Christmas, and we meant Chinese New Year, not regular New Year. There you go. There you <laughs> All right, go. we have another. We have another question from uh, Mike Lee, who says. Uh, Jim and Len often talk about Disney park decisions in terms of the expense, mm -hmm. especially when talking about staffing. On a quick Google, back of the envelope calculation is that the average Disney cast member makes about $35,000 annually. Mm. So if you assume that benefits and payroll taxes cost 100% of that, that's probably mm. an overestimate. We're talking about payroll cost of 70K. Mm. Uh, and so the question is, is um, what kind of numbers are you thinking about in terms of attractions that require a lot of cast members to operate. So for example, if there are 10 cast members needed to staff an attraction during a shift and two shifts of work to cover park hours, you're looking at $1.4 million in staffing costs for a single attraction. That sounds expensive, but is that anywhere in your ballpark? And Jim, the reason why I mentioned this question is we've looked at the numbers that it took to run Galactic Star Cruiser. Mm -hmm. And and David, have you seen these? Have you seen these numbers? No, I have not. Mm -hmm. Okay, so imagine you've but, got. But I'm a... imagining they're astronomical because they closed it. <laughs> astronomical, get it? Okay. Well, so okay. this was the interest. Yeah. So, it, and that's what it was. Like Disney realized, I think, pretty quickly that they were never going to make any money on Star Cruiser. And here's the reason why. Let's mm -hmm. say that you've got someone who's an equity actor, like the captain, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the captain who's there, right? You've also got a backup captain on site in case something goes wrong. Somebody falls down some stairs, twists an ankle, something like that. So now you've got two captains for one role. Also, you've got a third person who's off site, but is available on call and thus getting paid something. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's in case like the first two people get COVID, right? Mm -hmm. The third person is off site. They can come in and take the role. And then because you're on a two day on, two day off schedule, you've got the exact same setup duplicated for the next shift of people. So one guest facing role might actually involve somewhere between five and six people. Mm -hmm. And those are equity performers. Mm -hmm. That's where the expense comes in. No, I get that. I get that. Yeah. And, and also it's worth noting again, when, you know, doing the back of the envelope calculation about your staffing costs, but you know, when you think about the classic Disney, theme park setup these days that you route yeah. people through the gift shop it's like okay well we, we can offset that expense with you know uh with merch sales and and that you know that i think that was kind of the irony with galactic star cruiser um that giant retail component you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, people had paid up front, you know, oh, tremendous yeah. amounts. But, you know, when it came to that sweet, sweet retail, you know, uh, after the fact, 
they only had those two tiny little shops. I mean, the one yeah. actually on board that was, you know, in fact, had odd hours. And then there was that, you know, the, the shop that they threw open as you were exiting. So you could get yeah. your gear that <laughs> said, you know, I have been on the Galactic Star Cruiser. It, it, it reminds know. me, that, that shop at the very end, like when you actually left the hotel, reminds me of like, you know, when you're leaving the TTC and there's like that last gift shop right before you uh, take the tram to your car, there it's like, do you, do you need a Mickey umbrella? Like this mm-hmm. is, this is where you're getting this. Yeah. I mentioned that too, though, Jim, because of things like, uh, if you think about shows like Fantasmic, which mm-hmm. has a lot of face characters, mm-hmm. I mean, there are only so many people in the world who look like Anna or Elsa, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the number of people who can play that role, who are willing to work for, you know, for Disney and, you know, work around the schedule, you, you start to get a a filter of relatively few people willing to do that. And now when you talk about like you need a, a bunch of them and they're expensive, mm-hmm. you see why, you know, Voyage of the Little Mermaid uh, didn't come back to Hollywood Studios until they were desperate. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and Dave tell us why Disneyland's House of the Future was the real Barbie's dream house to all theme park fans. We'll be right back. Maybe it's because I turned 65 in a few weeks, but I've been feeling kind of nostalgic lately, looking back fondly at things I used to do in my childhood, like, say, watching cartoons on Saturday morning in my PJs, sitting way too close to our family's TV set while I slurped down a bowl of some sugary cereal. Of course, now that I'm older, much, much older, and hopefully a little wiser, I know that, especially when it comes to breakfast, I really have to watch out for sugar and empty carbs. Which is why I am so, so grateful that Magic Spoon cereal is out there. Because Magic Spoon has all of those flavors you used to love as a kid, but with high protein and less sugar. And just listen to the four flavors you get with Magic Spoon's variety pack. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. Myself, I have to admit, I'm a big fan of Magic Spoon's Frosted Cereal, if only because the front of the box features this Merlin-like wizard who's then riding a big blue bunny. Uh, does that sound cool or, or what? I mean, the other reason I love Magic Spoon's Variety Pack is that this pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and 4 to 5 grams of net carbs. It's also high protein, has zero grams of sugar, and is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And did I mention it's only 140 calories a serving? Mind you, Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee, which means that if you don't like it for any reason, they'll then refund your money no questions asked. So start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash Disney Dish and use the code Disney Dish to save $5 off. Again, go to magicspoon.com backslash Disney Dish to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code Disney Dish at checkout to save $5 off your order. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring today's episode. If I were to ask you to list all of the subscriptions you have, would you be able to do it? More importantly, would you be able to cite the amount you're paying monthly for each of these subscriptions? I know that I wouldn't have been able to do that. Not until I signed up for Rocket Money, I mean. Once I did that, man, what an eye-opener that was. I couldn't believe all of the subscriptions I had, or, or for that matter, all of the money I was wasting. 
Rocket Money is the personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. And what I really love about Rocket Money is, well, I can now see all of my subscriptions in one place. If I see something I don't want, I could just cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. Better still, Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund on the last couple of months. They'll negotiate the lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and then Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Gotta tell you guys, I have so much more peace of mind, especially when I travel because of Rocket Money. I just love how I now have access to all of this info about my subscriptions all in one place. And just so you know, I'm not alone. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped them save an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions today by going to rocketmoney.com slash Disney Dish. That's rocketmoney.com slash Disney Dish. One more time, uh, for the guy who's struggling to hear this ad because of all the noises neighbor's snowblower is making, rocketmoney.com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. And we're back. All right, Jim and Dave, I think it's safe to say that architecture around the world went through a seismic change in the 25-year period after World War II. So like 1945-ish to 1970, right? There was this huge housing boom in the United States fueled by first-time homebuyers. And then as this started, a lot of people were super interested in basic questions about what a house is supposed to do what it's supposed to have and who it's supposed to be for. So fundamental questions that I think, you know, deserve to be re-asked uh, every generation or so. And as a listener exercise, I actually went through and did this. You guys should do it too. Mm-hmm. You walk through your house and ask, what's the purpose of this room when it was built? What was it supposed mm-hmm. to do? And what does it do now? And I mentioned this because uh, the, the last house Laurel and I had, had a dining room, a formal dining room that we never set foot in. <laughs> But if money, skill, and time were unlimited, how would you change your house to better suit your life? So uh, uh, a couple of other interesting things going on during this period. From 1945 to 1965, uh, Arts and Architecture Magazine sponsored the Case Study House Project. Dave, are you familiar with this? Yeah, a little bit. So uh, 36 designs were created. Uh, 27 of them seem to have been built, almost all of them in California, most of them around Los Angeles, Around 20 of them still exist in their original form. We're very close to it. Very famous architects. So Neutra, Elwood, uh, the Eames duo, uh, Koenig, Eero Saarinen. Yeah. Uh, Walt would have been super familiar with these houses. I think, Dave, you point out in your book, Walt actually bought a kid house from yes. Sears, right? Well, you know, uh, one of one of the first house. I think it was the first house he and his brother Roy each bought lots next to each yeah. other on Lyric That's Avenue. Right. That's and, right. And and then they bought kid houses. And a lot of yeah. people today, I mm-hmm. I think if you talk to kids today, they 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 you know they they aren't aware of this, but mm-hmm. but uh, used to be able to buy homes mm-hmm. uh, through the Sears and Roebuck catalog, through Montgomery Ward. Yeah, there was. There was a company, uh, Aladdin Homes, Kid mm-hmm. Homes. Um, I have a whole slew of uh, 
uh, books on kit homes uh, that are reprints of their catalogs uh, that were put out by Dover Publications, and they're available. You know, people can oh, really? buy those Dover? online. There, yeah, Dover mm-hmm. Publications oh, has a whole yeah. group of these books, and and they're wonderful because they're they're from that period of uh, the craftsman style. Uh, right. You know, Ooh. turn of the century, 1910s yeah. uh, mm-hmm. into the 1920s, before you start getting into Art Deco, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. that craftsman period. And uh, and what would happen is uh, they would uh, essentially uh, uh, cut all the lumber and uh, that you need and and drop it off at the at the site. Mm-hmm. And you'd have the foundation built and then build the house on top of that foundation. Um this actually had a brief um, emergence again uh, during her or right after Hurricane Katrina hit New oh, Orleans. Yeah. Um, there was uh, an architect who designed what was called the Katrina Cottages. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember the, this. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and you you could buy them through Lowe's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, uh, again, they would dump all the materials at the, at the, at this, uh, lot mm-hmm. and, and, and you'd have a crew assemble the house, you know? So, and, uh, yeah. yeah. Hit homes. Mm-hmm. Big, yes. it was a big deal. So a couple of things here. Uh, one is that the style of architecture that emerged during this period, 1945 to 1970, I think is, uh, uniquely American. There are no houses around the world. That are built in quite the same style. So if you think about like the Green Belt House by uh, Ralph Robson or Neutra's uh, Omega House, like those are American designs. They don't. They're not German. They're not Swiss. They're not English. They're not French. The other uh, interesting thing was, and I didn't know this till I uh, did research for Dave's book. Do you guys know that the uh, the thirty year mortgage was not really a thing in the United States housing market until after the war? Yeah, no, I knew that. Yeah. Oh. I knew oh, I you know, prior yeah. prior yeah. to that, if you wanted to buy a house, you 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 scraped the cash together or you built it yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow, so this was this was the thing, and it, it relates to one of the key problems for the construction industry mm-hmm. during this time. It was raw materials, both from an, uh, a cost perspective oh. and from an availability perspective, right? Okay, and this and this is why Monsanto was looking for ways to build new markets for its plastics, right? So all of these things are coming together. You got a huge number of people interested in buying homes. You've got mm-hmm. Congress making it easier to buy homes. You've got Monsanto saying, what can we do with plastics, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, there's all this interest in American architecture out in California from things like the case study house. So, so Dave, why don't, you, uh, why don't you bring us up to speed here? What, uh, how, did, how did the project for the Home of the Future get started? Well, really, this project got started when the Monsanto Plastics Division in Massachusetts uh, mm-hmm. funded a research project at MIT. This mm-hmm. is before, you know, Walt heard about it. Uh, this was something that uh, the Plastics Division wanted to do in order to expand market penetration for their products. But a lot of people didn't realize it or don't realize it, but plastics was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Plas- a lot of the plastic technology, a lot of the plastics that were developed were a byproduct of World War II, you right. know? And with the war being over, how could you take that material and put it to civilian use? Yeah, you mentioned this in your book, right? Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the ways the or the raw materials that you make plastics out of come from petroleum uh, processing, right? It's a byproduct, and it was yeah. cheap. 
It was yeah. ca- it was chemical uh, petroleum byproducts and 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 uh, new chemicals that they yeah. were uh, you know creating uh, new molecular molecular structures mm-hmm. and right. uh, and so they wanted to see if they could uh, create structural uh, pieces for home construction and as right. you mentioned there was an exodus from the cities into the suburbs yeah after world. world war ii you had the baby yeah. boom you know people were getting married having families all the gis that came back from the war mm-hmm. uh yeah. and you know people were moving out into the suburbs that's why you had like levittown i was built about out to say you had levittown built on long island there's a mm-hmm. levittown in pennsylvania and i think mm-hmm. there's a levittown down in uh Florida, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. you had those kinds of big, you know, um, uh, subdivisions being built uh, with cookie cutter homes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the you know, there was a stress, I think, on uh, raw materials. Absolutely. And, you know, there was also a limitation to what you could do with uh, two by fours you know, in building homes. <laughs> uh, and, and so they were looking at, could we do curvilinear uh, uh, structural pieces, yeah. create, you know, new forms in architecture? And this, I think, is one of the one of the great things that you point out really early in the book, uh, in your book, Dave, is that, you know, Monsanto wasn't out there to, to build a two by four, but out of plastic. Mm-hmm. They were Correct. like, what did, they were, they really wanted to reinvent the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they 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 would go back to fundamental principles. What are we supposed to be doing here, and how can we make it as pleasing as possible? And and so, I think one one of the genius things about the design of that house mm-hmm. was that the entire house is hanging off of a sixteen foot by sixteen foot core. All right, so let's uh, let's describe so, this. So they so they so they go to yeah. MIT, right? What does yeah. MIT come up with? What do they add to this? So what what they came up with uh, was this 16 foot by 16 foot uh, footprint, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. if you will, that could be used on a lot of different types of topography uh, that (sighs) might not be conducive for building. So that was one of the big, yeah, Mm -hmm. like a hillside, uh, you know, taking advantage of, you know, sloped uh, terrain that Mm -hmm. might otherwise be more difficult to build a standard home uh and so you know that was one of the genius things about it you also have to realize that that the uh the design of the house if you're looking down on top of it it looks like a plus sign Mm -hmm. yep and and each wing each uh wing cannot hang on its own without its opposing wing so, oh, right. that, so it's that's a, the way a, it was it was engineered to be these cantilevered wings that are counterbalancing one another. So if you took one wing off, the other wing would collapse off of the uh, uh, structure. Right. There, so when yeah, they, they built mean, it, they they built it with a uh, a wooden scaffolding form that mm-hmm. held the the bottom bents as mm-hmm. they put the top bents on and connected everything to that central core. And this was a new uh, building technique, right? This hadn't been tried before. Right, exactly. And and one of the things that uh, you point out at the end of the bo- book is, uh, I guess, Disney, at the end of the uh, the lifespan of the house, had gone back and checked to see how much the building had settled. 
over its 10 years? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily Disney. I think it was it, it was Monsanto and the other companies okay. involved in, in in the building of this project because I think there, there was something like 30 other companies mm-hmm. that were partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was really a showcase for all kinds of new materials uh, right. for living in a home, right, uh, in this home of the future. But um, the the wings had settled uh, less than a quarter of an inch over a 10 year period, <laughs> wow. uh, which is really astounding because I think yeah. a standard house would, would settle more than that. Okay. You know, oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, a regular house probably does not have a million people a year traipsing through it. Either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. two million be on average because you, you over the ten year period that it was at the park, it had over twenty million visitors. Wow! So they build it, and it's this uh, cantilevered plastic thing. And the uh, each of the plastic shells is uh, identical, right? It's the same form used what sixteen times? You said, yeah, it's the same shape, but mm-hmm. uh, the uh, eight lower bents have a floor plane built into them. Whereas oh, right. the uh, eight upper bents have the curved ceiling, you know, and, uh, and, and they, and how and they, they join like at vent- the end. Okay. And how do they build things like ventilation, piping, stuff like that? That's all underneath or above? Yeah, that was all built into uh, into the structure itself. In fact, in some of the photos in the book, you'll see sort of these round, uh, they almost look like speaker covers uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the connected Yeah, you mentioned bents. this, yeah. Uh, and and those are actually ventilation, uh, uh, intake, outtake. So, Dave, walk us through a uh, a house tour, right? So we're in Disneyland. We want to go see the home of future living, uh, and we're walking up the stairs. When we walk up into the stairs, what's the first room that we see? So the first room you're actually going to see is the uh, Adams for Living kitchen. Right. Uh, and you're also you're also going to be able to peer into sort of the dining family room. But okay. but in theory, you're looking towards the Adams for Living Kitchen and okay. you're going to then walk uh, uh, along uh, the uh, outer side or the right side of that kitchen area. And the children's bedrooms are there. There's a doorway okay. that goes in for the children's so bedrooms. Let's go through it. Let's go through one of the rooms at a time, and then we'll save the kitchen because I think it's the most interesting. So we 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 see the kids' bedroom, and in the original design, this is for two kids, and I think the room separates. You said, yeah. So there there's actually a uh, uh, a movable foldable uh, wall uh, that's made out of a plastic like material. Uh, that acts as a room divider. So okay. if you had your typical family where you had one boy and one girl, mm-hmm. uh, you had uh, uh, each had their own bedroom. But during the day, you could open this uh, this wall up uh, mm. and have a larger play area. Uh, in later iterations of the bedroom, they they actually put in a solid wall to divide the two bedrooms and hung a desk on either side of it. Uh, so each kid had a desk. And uh, what was your take in the book about the amount of space that was dedicated to the kids' bedrooms here? Uh, I, I thought it was rather on the small side. You know, it was uh, there there wasn't a lot of space. In fact, you know, the entire house uh, wasn't much bigger than uh, I think I compared it to uh, a cruise ship cabin. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit larger than a cruise ship cabin, uh, Mm -hmm. of, well, 
you know, the house was just under 1200 square feet of living right. space. Mm -hmm. So your typical uh, cruise ship cabin is about uh, 250 square feet or so, which would be one wing. Mm -hmm. So one wing is about the size of a, a cruise ship cabin. So, uh, so each kid got half of a cruise ship cabin. There you go. They you got know, ripped it, it, off. Because <laughs> you, you actually, I think you actually mentioned D uh, Disney Cruise in, in this. And the, the funny thing yeah. is, is, I'm going through mm -hmm. this, and I realized that the uh, the bedroom that my brother and I shared growing up was smaller than half of this room. Oh wow! <laughs> okay. Oh, I hope you had bunk yeah. beds. There we we did, in fact, have bunk beds. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right so that's the uh, kids bedroom what uh what comes next then on this the, the parents bedroom mm -hmm. now the interesting thing guys i want to tell you about this at uh, the first image in the parents bedroom chapter you mm -hmm. see sort of the housewife of the future fixing a pillow on on a funky looking chair that's actually called the bird's nest chair yes uh, and, mm -hmm. and so this picture is obviously 1957 mm-hmm just several months ago, the end of October, I happened to be in the Doha Qatar airport. Halfway around the world. Mm -hmm. I, I, I had a layover there for four hours. So I went up to the business lounge. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I walked into the business lounge, there must have been a dozen of these chairs in a beautiful burgundy fabric. Oh, wow. And I was blown away because I knew what it was right away. I did a double mm -hmm. take mm -hmm. and I went over, I put my, my carry bags down. I, I, I tipped the chair to look underneath <laughs> it. I, I examined the whole thing before I sat in it. And it, mm -hmm. honestly, it was one of the most comfortable chairs I had been oh, in, yeah. in a long time. Really? And it's oh, still yeah. being made. It, it's oh, no, licen yeah. apparently licensed to another furniture company that makes them. Yeah, I mean, there's any any well known mid century chair you can still buy from the original, like Herman Miller, mm -hmm. who, who I think did a ton of stuff for the um, for the well, home future. There's, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of a lot of the Herman Miller uh, pieces were in the House of the Future. Yeah, and they were cutting edge. They mm -hmm. they were noted furniture designers. The yeah. one one of my favorites. We'll get to it in the living room. Is the coconut lounge chair. Oh, By the way, Dave, uh, just as an aside, have you been to the TWA Hotel at JFK in New York yet? I have not done it yet. I, Let I, me know. When you, you know, come to New York, yeah. you and I will walk through together. Okay. I, I'd love to love do it. that. We'll, we'll have a drink in the lounge there. 100%. 100%. Yeah. All right. So uh, so what else is in the, uh, the, the parents' bedroom? Well, the parents' bedroom, you know, they, they have a nice bathroom. There's a mm -hmm. built-in vanity. Um, and you know, there was some clever built in furniture pieces that were done. I think storage uh, was really interesting, right? Yeah. And okay. I think they were very smart about, you know, how they utilized, uh, um, uh, the various, uh, storage cabinets that were built in and how they double, you know, closet, you know, the backside of the closet really doubles yeah. as the headboard for the master bedroom and, and all of that kind of stuff. The the thing that um that I got when I was reading, you know, the the thing about the parents' bedroom and especially the storage was to your point earlier, uh, Jim, to your point earlier about people moving out of the city to get more space in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Like this is a this is a solution to a problem that is for city dwellers. This is a small footprint with very, very uh limited storage, like you'd see in New York City, not in you know, the suburbs where you have uh, a lot more space. So it was interesting. It was an interesting design exercise for me to see it, but uh, I don't know how many people would actually want to live in that 
for very long, right? You know, I I, I comment on the fact that to me, this house, it, it, you know, I, I, I've said this a number of times in interviews uh, and I've said it in the, uh, towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think Disney should build a couple of these on, oh, on the property of the contemporary resort in Orlando oh, you would, and you allow would never people be able to, to get spend into them, a week dude. in them, you know, you would never because, get in. because to me that it, it's like the perfect, like if you had a spit of land up in the mountains or mm-hmm. out by the beach that oh, you I would could build, build this house. one of these on, uh, it, it's a great weekend place. It's a great place to spend a week or two. Uh, I, I couldn't see myself living in it year round at this size. That that's ingenious in a in a Dave, way hundred percent. You know, like the the it would be the contemporary equivalent of the Cropper the, Creek. You know, that means Cropper Creek for the poly. Well, Dave, why are people Dave? You 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 know someone at the company who can do this. You know, no, I, I, I honestly, am imploring you, sir. <laughs> you know something? I I honestly think that this is one of those things where you know they're building communities around uh, the mm-hmm. country. Oh, yeah, now. Yeah, Disney, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's like do a subdivision of of House of the Future someplace. Mm-hmm. You know, Palm Springs or you know someplace on the on the uh, property at Walt Disney World mm-hmm. uh, because I think that there's a huge oh. market. People would love these houses. Oh, you know, uh, and and right I now. think if you update the technology and how mm-hmm. it was being built using more sustainable materials and things like that. Oh, yeah. It, it, it is so interesting you bring up the technology thing, because that, that in prepping for today's show, I actually went back to the 19, ni- or 1953 Disneyland Perspectives, and this was where they listed what was going to go into the world of tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and, the magic house. And, well, that's it exactly, the magic yeah. house. And what's so funny about, you'll love this, Len, the magic house describes how it has a genie-like device in that you can talk to it and say, you know, uh, you know, please open the door and it, it, it would open the door and then you'd say, thank you. And it close the door. And it's like, here's, you know, the guys putting together the perspectives for Disneyland describing Alexa, Alexa, you know, <laughs> you know a, a, a 70 full, years from now. Yeah. No, that's it. Exactly. You know, uh, again, but, but, but again, that was before Monsanto and, and MIT entered yeah. the equation, right? Yeah, um, and, yeah. And, but by the way, when you look mm. at the house of the future, there's mm. a lot of things associated with the house of the future that were very forward thinking. I mean, oh, that absolutely. giant oh, yeah. flat panel television and, living yep, 100%. room during yeah. one of the remodels mm-hmm. you know it didn't work but it was the idea of it yeah. and yeah. what do we have today mm-hmm. you know the uh the camera at the front door mm-hmm. i mean that's yeah. a ring it's a ring you know it's a, yeah. it's a ring doorbell you know with a camera yeah. it's so fantastic no yeah. by the way dave i, well, I, I got to give you credit here because i've read a lot of architecture books and uh the thing that i think that you, your book does and that you did better than almost every other book is lots of photos like mm-hmm. if I, if we're talking about architecture, architecture is a visual medium. Sure. I do not want to see text. I want to see pictures, pretty pictures in color. And, and this book has them in spades. Like you did a great job. Thank you. And, and, and you know really, something, really what I try to do with all of my books is I try mm-hmm. to have a balance between text and images, mm-hmm. you oh, know, perfect. because because really, really people, no. people don't want to necessarily read everything. They want to see it. And well, so, yeah, no. you know, we Poor. try to lay out the book so that the photos accompany the text that's explaining what's going on. 
Well, okay, but, so but, but, but go, you go also ahead. hit that sweet spot between. I mean, the, the you know the research is is front and center, but yeah. uh, but also it, it just there's some great stories in this thing. I mean, just oh, you yeah. know the, about you know how the project came to be and the challenges once it's in the park and all that. I mean, it was, yeah. it, it was a great read, and but as as Len mentioned, that's you know the images here I've never seen before, and it and was the a lot that, of digging, a lot of digging. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Friends. So, uh, so let's continue our tour. And I, I, uh, we left off uh, right before the bathrooms. And Jim, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen the photographs of the bathrooms of the House of the Future, but let me just pose this question to you. Mm -hmm. If the people that designed airplane toilets had to put a shower in there, <laughs> that's what we're looking at here. <laughs> like this is my, I, I once had a, in, in the very first house I ever bought, I once had a, uh, a powder room that was so small. One of my friends commented that you actually had to make up your mind before you went in. I was, there we and go. I was, was going to go. <laughs> that, that, that's one of my favorite danger field jokes. You know, I had to go out in the hall to change my mind. Yeah. You know, no, that's you know. Dave, Dave, this, I mean, the bathroom, the bathroom is a, is a focus here, but describe what they did in terms of rethinking this fixture. Well, I, I think, I think you have to imagine now today, because this is, this, this bathroom is the precursor to the one piece tub shower fiberglass yes. unit that goes into most new homes today. Yes. Right. Yes. And, yes. Uh, and so this is one of the great things that came out of the house of the future was being able to pre-mold those kinds of things because prior to, to, you know, fiberglass and plastics, you know, right. most houses would have a cast iron bathtub that's, you know, enamel coated. Right. Yep. So, or some ceramic thing or something, but yeah. uh, in this particular instance, they, uh, they were able to mold the entire bathroom out of fiberglass in two pieces, a lower unit and an upper unit. Um, and again, this is the precursor to the pre-molded shower tub uh, unit uh, that uh, gets installed into all new homes today. For yeah, the most you can go part, to Lowe's you know, and buy unless them. You're, yeah, yeah. Unless you're building mm -hmm. some Beverly Hills mansion or something. You know? And I love, so, the, uh, I love the observation that you made about uh, this type of construction for bathrooms, that it minimizes the number of seams and therefore the number of leaks, but it's also easier to clean. So Absolutely. it's not like... It, yeah, they weren't just doing this as a, uh, like, you know, what can we make out of plastics? It's like, how will this help people who live in them? Like, they really thought about what mm -hmm. it could be like to live and maintain mm -hmm. this house over time. Yeah, But but I, I'll tell you one thing. You look at the toilet, and that toilet is really for, like, a five-year-old. <laughs> I know? was going to mention it. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I get it. Airplane toilets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it had, um, the other cool thing was, I think, the was it the shower that had the video screen? Where you could see, yeah. So, so you know, again, they they had it mocked up. It didn't actually work, but you know, mm -hmm. again, this is you know uh, our uh, handheld devices now, where oh, yeah. we can FaceTime with people and see them. So yeah. this was supposedly, if you were in the bathroom and somebody came to the front door, mm -hmm. you'd be able to go over to this little unit on the wall and be able to see who was at the front door. There's a little TV screen on it and yep. some buttons for you to be able to talk to. Uh, the front door or a different room in the house or whatever, you know, and, and again, you know, these things didn't exist. They were, they were projecting these out as, you know, this is the future. This is what, yeah. what will come. And, uh, and this was something that actually does, you know, come to fruition. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and, and they were, so they were predictive in, uh, in that area. 
the uh, and what was the lighting in the bathroom? This was sort of like a translucent panel thing there, at the top. There, yeah, there was a a really cool uh, lighting panel that they used in here. Um, that was uh, it, it used like a phosphorescent paint that was excited oh. with electricity. So it was uh, uh, it, it it glowed uh, mm-hmm. and gave you sort of this nightlight, uh, con- you know, uh, sense uh, 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 when the lights were out, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was something that I thought was really interesting, mm-hmm. um, and it, it it just didn't really take off. It was a it was like panelescent plaques mm-hmm. that were yeah. made by the Sylvania Electric Products Company. And, and it it essentially um, uh, just uh, created this cold, artificial, low intensity light mm-hmm. uh, that uh, was was really like a light a, a night light, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I th- I thought those were kind of cool. You can see one uh, in the uh, photo uh, that's at the head of the bathroom chapter, um, and it's it's mounted on the wall uh, above yeah. the toilet uh and you know again when the lights were out uh that would be glowing and give you this sort of yellowish green glow uh, you know that, in, lo- you know, in looking light. at that photo yeah and looking at that photo i mean this still looks like a modern bathroom like if you had somebody oh, yeah. who was saying you know i'm gonna i want to i want you to design a futuristic looking bathroom for a space epic i'm gonna film and they'd be like how about this and you'd be like, oh my God, that's exactly what I want. That's very futuristic. Yeah, we built it 70 years ago. Well, <laughs> you know? <laughs> there was a, I'm about to say, you know, that, that, that somebody talked to, with Kubrick you know, for, for, for 2000. Exactly. So. All right, Dave, let's talk about the uh, the living room in the kitchen. Let's uh, yeah, start with the you know, the, the, the living room to me was really one of, uh, it has one of the most uh, fascinating pieces to me, and that's yeah. the coconut chair. And and, and the, the Herman Miller company yep. is still making the coconut chair. You can still buy it with contemporary fabrics. You can select, and 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 it's like a four to five thousand dollar chair, by the way. Uh, yeah. And one day I will get one of those. Uh, but I I was just fascinated by this because George Nelson designed this. He was inspired by a broken piece of coconut shell. That's why it's called <laughs> the, the coconut lounge chair. That's right. You, you uh, mentioned the story in the book. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, again, I imagine this being as comfortable as the bird's nest chair that I sat in back in October. Oh, yeah. uh, and at some point I will sit in this chair, uh, whether I buy it or or go to the Herman Miller showroom. Um, but the other interesting thing about the living room uh, that, I, you know, it has an Eames chair in it. Uh, yeah. When you see it, it's, you know, ubiquitous uh, from yeah. that time period. They still make those chairs. But I also love the sofa, which I had love a, this sofa. A, I was wondering if you were going to talk about this. Yeah, a back bolster that you could move. Mm. So you okay. could have you could be facing one way or face the other way just by moving the back bolster. And I just thought, how ingenious is that? And yeah. why aren't they making that today? Literally the first thing, the first thing I thought. So, Jim, are you familiar with this? Did you see it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it it is. It's an amazing design. Which again, you know, I, I remember seeing. Uh, well, again, film from the fifties and the sixties of you know, you know the the housewife doing you know moving the, this piece yeah. to set up for a party or or that sort of thing, and it's like. 
clever, you know. But all right, so let me let me let me describe it for our listeners who haven't who haven't seen it. So uh, you have a sofa, right? And it's a you've got a flat uh, cushion area, right? And then you've got the back, which I guess goes up what Dave a foot, eighteen inches or so. Yeah, it, it's sort but of it, a low back. It's a low back, right? But the interesting thing is that the back is tied to a pivot point mm-hmm. on the middle side of the uh, of the couch, so that you can actually swing like pivot, move it from one side of the couch to the other. And I think Dave, you had pointed out, if you wanted to watch TV, you pushed it one way. And if you wanted to look outside of the windows, you just pushed it the other way. So the couch didn't move. No. Just the position of the cushions moved. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it was also uh, a a split sofa. So you could move one section – to the back and the other side, and and so it's almost like a settee. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know right? that. Oh, where, really? Where you uh, two people could be sitting facing each other. Yep. Oh, if that I makes sense. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's you know the and, and by the way, the other fascinating thing in front of that. Well, for, for let me just say with the sofa, the sofa is on a wooden platform, mm-hmm. right? And it, it gives the sense that it's floating in the living room, similar to the right. house floating on the on the mm-hmm. foundation. Uh, yeah. But in front of in front of the sofa is another very cool thing that I thought, why isn't IKEA making this? And that is a reversible coffee table. So you could flip the coffee table top mm-hmm. off the base, and you could have either a, a light or white surface, or you could flip it over and have a black surface. Why is no one doing this? I, I know, and and I just thought, wow, that is just really ingenious, and and there's no fastening. If you look at the design of it, uh, it it, it fits snugly into a metal base, uh, yep. just by uh, you know setting it down. Uh, there's little posts sticking up that keep it in place. Mm-hmm. So I I just you know really love the fact that that they had this, and and there's also a great picture of Lillian Disney. Uh, uh, you know, sort of inspecting the house before it opened to the public. Yeah, and and I, <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to make sure I put this in there because of the fact that uh, you know, you don't see her very often. You don't, uh, right? You, don't. you know, is that, a, and, is that a fireplace or a heater? Yeah, it was, it, it was a fireplace, <sighs> but a non-working fireplace. Mm-hmm. But still, we can make it work, right? We have the yeah, technology. There we go. Yes, yeah, I, I, I love the, I love the color photos in this section because it shows. Um, the color choices, the palette choices that yeah. were made. And the interesting thing here is like anytime you talk about like House of the Future, the concern is always that it's going to look sterile like a hospital operating room. Mm-hmm. And I think you pointed this out, Dave, like the very first version of the House of the Future that opened up was different after Imagineering did their redesigns a couple of years right. later, right? A- a- absolutely. You and, know, and the, and I the, think the, uh, most, the most striking changes were in the living room, I think. Yeah, and, and and you know when it first opened, it was a very clean design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and so with the different iterations, they were using sort of the cutting edge furniture design of that day. You right. know, to to be able to put uh, uh, a little bit more warmth and color mm-hmm. into um, uh, each of the rooms, uh, and right. and you know, quite frankly, when you look at the the spread that's in the living room chapter of mm-hmm. the remodeled uh, one that had, and, and it shows the large, uh, uh, nope, uh, the page before that, I think mm-hmm. it is. Uh, yeah, the big spread. 
you know yeah. that that to me is sort of the sweet spot for the interior design of the living room yeah. what i love is you know they're 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 taking that sofa they they're using the curve of the back wall of one section they're following that curve off and the yeah. space that it creates behind it a triangular space becomes a desk yeah and I just think, you know, again, it's really efficient use of uh, of the space and, yeah. and applying some, I think, eye appeal to to the design and, and the design thinking that was going on in it, you know? No, this is the thing. I mean, uh, and, it, 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 they thought about, like, you know, how are people actually going to live in this? And I think for, you know, for yeah. a theme park thing, amazing, yeah. And well, so, Dave, so the, the you mentioned this, um, you know, this iteration. And that's – is that a, a plastic floor? That's carpet, oh, Acrylon okay. carpet. There we go. I might add. <laughs> I'm good. We're the gonna do a whole thing, Monsanto Dave. Monsanto Acrylon. Yeah. There we go. There we go. And, there, and then they changed one. they they changed the color of it to uh, to blue and then to like a rust colored orange, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and and if you look at the rust color one, that's more of a throw rug that's been put down. Uh, if, if, if I might, you know, a it, large, large throw rug that was cut to to you know oh. those dimensions. If, if Go ahead, I Jim. might interrupt here for just a sec, though, that that you mentioned the color, and that's the thing. Going through this book and looking at the the color palette of the fifties and the sixties, I have to ask: when you were actually doing the photo restoration for this thing, how many times did you you know you get the proofs back and it's like that can't be the real color? <laughs> this, <laughs> this color doesn't occur in nature. What do we do? You know, you know, and, Can we and, calibrate this? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like nope, that's the color, guys. You know, so yeah. The other thing that I love about this is uh, wasn't Imagineering, uh, especially John Hench, involved in one of the redos? Yeah, well, actually, John Hench was put in charge of the House of the Future for its entire ten years. Oh, you know, okay. Walt appointed him to to you know cite it uh, at at the entrance to Disneyland, and mm -hmm. to, so he he was sort of like the show designer, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know. All right, Dave. I know we're uh, we're running uh, short of time here. We didn't talk about the dining room or the family room of the future. We didn't talk about the opening day or public reception. Here's what I suggest: uh, everyone should go out and buy this book and read it for themselves. I think it's a fantastic addition to uh, Disney theme park history, and I think you did a great job on this, Dave. Thanks very much. I, I I really appreciate that. And and the one thing I will say is that at the towards the back of the book, you know, we talk about the legacy of the House of the Future, mm -hmm. and you know, the Howard Johnsons in Anaheim. <laughs> right next to Disneyland oh. built yeah. a retro house of the future suite, which is really fantastic. And I, and it was so fantastic. I talk about it in the book yeah. because I, I got a chance to stay in it before it opened to the public while they were still kind of finishing it off. And, and again, I, I, it's such a wonderful experience. That's why I think Disney should build a few of these down at the contemporary resort uh, in Orlando, because I think they would be booked year round. You know, hundred percent. I'll Never take my money now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. By the way, if, if the listeners want to get a signed copy of the book, um, a signed copy, you can get that from theoldmillpress.com. And for your listeners, if they use the code SAVE20 when they check out, they'll take another 20% off the discounted price already. SAVE20. And if they don't want to buy it at the Old Mill Press, you can buy it uh, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. If you have an independent bookstore, they can easily order it for you. And I always say, support your local bookstores. The, the book's title is 
House of the Future, Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of Tomorrow. Thanks very much for coming on, Dave. Real quick, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at davidbosser.com, and I'm also on all the social platforms, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, X, formerly Twitter, and uh, LinkedIn. Fantastic. Cool. Thanks again, Dave. Go to your uh, call. Thanks for being uh, on all the All right. Show. Thanks, great job thanks the guys. It was great, great, great talking to you. Take right. care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com slash Media, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. This week's video, episode four, is the history of Mickey's Birthday Land. And I won't tell you which of the cartoon houses there was inspired by Jim Shul's mother-in-law's house, but it's true. Check it out at patreon.com slash Media. On next week's show, Jim tells us how the Imagineers handled Walt's decision in January of 1955 to add Tomorrowland to Disneyland's opening day lineup, giving them just six months to get it done. I've seen archival footage of this, and it is amazing. Can't wait to hear it. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We are produced spectacularly by Eric Kersey, who'll be giving posture, footwork, and rhythm tips at February Frostbite, the Montana Tango Festival, on Saturday, February 24th, 2024, at the Elks Lodge number 383 on Pate Street in beautiful downtown Missoula, Montana. If you think the subtle differences between tango and milonga are one of life's great mysteries, this is the event for you. While Eric's doing that, please go ahead. Chip's laughing and I'm laughing and I'm laughing. <laughs> While Eric's doing that, please go into iTunes and write our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.